Good morning. Good to see all of you, and all of you. Uh, I'm still getting used to that. Anybody else still kind of feel like you're getting away with something when you go into a grocery store without a mask on? Like, oh, wait, do that thing? Anyway, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to, uh, to do our next sermon in this series that we've been going through called The Plan. We're on episode 28, so we've been doing this since September. And our goal has been to tell the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end. So we started with Genesis in September, and we're going to be doing the resurrection on Easter. And that puts us today in the ministry of Jesus. But before we get into that, we're going to remind ourselves the story that the Bible tells. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world, and he put human beings in it with a particular purpose in mind to rule over the earth on his behalf. And then on the seventh day, he came down to live with them, and that seventh day, that is the goal of God's design. But there's one weak link in the design, which is us. We, uh, you know, hum- uh, Adam and Eve messed it up, and human beings kept messing it up, and so the plan didn't work because of our failures. And so God started this project to restore his plan to the world by choosing one particular family called the family of Israel, and he was going to give them, make them kind of this like display model of the plan. So he gave them a particular place to live in, and then he gave them their purpose. He wrote it out in 613 laws of exactly how he wanted them to live, and then he came down to live with them in the temple so that in that one place, the whole plan was functioning and the world could look at Israel and understand who God is and what he wants for his people. But again, the weak link was the people. The Israelites weren't any better than the rest of us at living out this plan, and so they failed and they failed and they failed to the point where God decided, the only way I can accurately show the world who I am and what I stand for is by ending this arrangement, by by, uh, declaring this covenant broken to show that I don't endorse what they've been doing. So Israel was sent into exile, and that's kind of where we've been stuck. Some of the the Jews got to come back to Jerusalem, but they built a temple, but God didn't come back to live in it, and God hasn't really restored them. And so for four to five hundred years, they're waiting for God to restore them until John the Baptist comes out and starts preaching that God is ready to move again. He says the the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus comes out and begins to say the same thing. And last week we talked about how this message, this gospel that Jesus was preaching was the news that God is ready to move again. He's ready to restore, the, uh, restore Israel. That's what the kingdom of God is near means. And so it was time for the, for the Jews to change their paths, to come back to God and to follow him. That's what repent and believe means. And so Today, what we're going to do as we're drawing out the different threads of Jesus' ministry is we're going to start looking at the way Jesus, what Jesus did with those who responded to his message. Last week, we focused on the message. We acknowledged that some people followed him and some people didn't. And today, we're going to talk about what happened when people chose to follow him. So actually, our opening passage is going to be the same one as last week. And as I read this, remember how we keep our bearings in a story in the Bible. This is how we've been doing it the whole time that you want to watch for four things. Who is the story about? Where is their home? And what's their relationship to their home? How can they meet with God? And what, does, what has God told them to do? And those coordinates help you position the story in this overall story that God is telling in the Bible. So, 
Let's go back to last week's opening passage where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to church one Sunday, or, or, or sorry, Saturday, uh, into the synagogue, and they ask him to speak, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, Jesus found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All right, so let's get our coordinates. Who is this story about? It's about Jesus and the Jews. The Jews are God's people. God is still committed to saving the world through the Jews. That hasn't changed. But he's got to deal with the situation that the Jews have gotten themselves into through their disobedience. And so Jesus has been sent to be the one who leads them out of that, that um, the situation that they're in. So Jesus is the leader of the Jews. He is the one that God has appointed for that. There's lots of other people who claim to be the leaders, but Jesus is the one that God has called. Where is their home? The promised land has been carved up into Roman territories called Galilee and Judea. So the relationship that the Jews have to their home is they're not in control of it. The Romans are. The Romans are the ones who decided on those borders. There's actually a Roman governor in charge of Judea. There's a Jewish king in charge of Galilee, but he's appointed by the Romans. So they don't have control over their own land like they were supposed to according to the original covenant. Now, how can they meet with God? Now, here's what would have surprised the Jews the most at this time, is they thought they could meet God at the temple, but God's presence never returned to the temple. But what we found a couple of weeks ago is that God's presence did return, but it returned in Jesus. And so if you want to meet God during this time, there is a location where you can count on meeting God, but it's not the temple. It's Jesus. Now, the last question, and the one we're going to focus on mostly during this sermon, is what did God tell Jesus to do? Because today we're going to end up touching on one of the things that people argue about more in terms of what Jesus came to do. The passage that he read, he's, giving him, he's listing out his mission. And what we saw there was a lot of individual interactions. The, the kinds of things that we often think of when we think of the ministry of Jesus, of freeing prisoners, giving sight to the blind, like having individual interactions with people. And we often will think that that was the mission that Jesus had, was to individually call people. Probably because for a lot of people, that's the mission that Jesus has now, to call individuals so that I can be saved by Jesus and I can have my relationship with Jesus individually. On, on one side, that's what we'll say, is that Jesus came to save individual people and, uh, and that's the goal of his mission. There are also some who will say Jesus didn't come to found any kind of organization. He just came to teach people to do better. He just came to teach them a, a better way of living, but he didn't intend to leave behind himself a movement. He didn't intend to found a church. And these are both variations of the same idea that Jesus came for individuals not to establish a, a movement or, or a church. And so we're going to look at what that actually means, and we're going to start by taking a closer look at this passage that Jesus uses to announce his mission. Because those, the parts that he quotes do tend to list individual interactions. But if you go back and read the passage that Jesus is quoting, you'll find that it's not about saving random individuals. 
As you carry on and you get to verse 4, it says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. Every week as we've been in the New Testament, we've been coming back to this point that the mission of Jesus and, the, and John the Baptist was to announce the renewal of Israel. That's what Isaiah 61 is about, that the recovery of sight for the blind and the freeing of the oppressed, those are all signs that God is renewing Israel to his plan. And so Jesus's mission from this passage, when he announces this to the Jews, what they're hearing is that his purpose is to proclaim the renewal of Israel. Because you have to renew Israel before God's plan to save the world that he's, he's revealed, will take effect. So from here, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what, how Jesus accomplished this mission. And we're going to be keeping an eye on this question of, did Jesus come to save individuals? Did he come to just teach people to live, with, you know, to love, people, to love each other more? Or did he come to establish something? And we're going to be mostly in the first two chapters of Mark. Here's where we'll begin. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Jesus goes around finding people and saying, hey, follow me. Like it matters to Jesus that there are people who actually follow him, which would indicate that he's starting some kind of movement. Now, you might say, yeah, but he's just, re- he's just recruiting people to help him teach his message. It's still mainly about just teaching people to love each other more. Except that what is the mission that he tells the disciples they're going to get? Does he say, follow me and I will make you teachers of good morals? No, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's, he's saying that their mission is also going to be to get other people to follow Jesus. So the first thing that we see as we look at the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus traveled around Galilee recruiting Jews to join his movement. And so at the outset, it certainly looks like Jesus is putting together some kind of, some kind of group. And what we're going to find is that the things that Jesus does are meant to broadcast that message that he's putting together a movement with people to, his, the, to the Jews. That the things that he does take on that special significance. Because when Jesus, we have to remember that everything Jesus does, he's doing as a person who is claiming that Israel is getting restored through his ministry, right? And that adds another uh, element to everything that Jesus does. So I'll give you an example as we talk about his healings. Okay? A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, or more likely that word means um, filled with compassion. Basically, he had an emotional reaction to the man's situation. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, what we see here is that Jesus has incredible compassion for this man. 
This man who other people would not be willing to touch. They would be afraid to go near him. They would consider him an outcast and marginalized. And Jesus has compassion on him and heals him and, and shows profound love for this marginalized person. And that is important. However, it's also important for us to recognize Jesus wasn't the only healer going around. In fact, the Pharisees, the Gospels tell us that the Pharisees had healers going around healing people. But it means something different when you're a healer who is claiming to restore Israel. And you can see that as you read what Jesus says to him next. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Okay, now this is important because this man, until he was healed, was not allowed in the temple, right? There are very strict rules in Leviticus that if you have a skin disease, you may not enter the temple grounds because your skin disease is a visual representation of death and they're meant to show that God is not, does not, is not okay with death so you can't have death represented in the tabernacle or in the temple. But this is also true of almost everyone that Jesus heals. Jesus healed a woman with a bleeding disorder. If you're actively bleeding, you're not allowed in the temple. Jesus healed people with physical deformities who are paralyzed. If you are deformed, you are not allowed in the temple. Which means that if you're a priest in the temple during the ministry of Jesus, you may never have met Jesus, but all there's this steady stream of people coming from Galilee who are able to worship in the temple for the first time in their lives. See, when Jesus says he's restoring Israel and then he heals people, he is literally restoring those people to the community of God. Those people are able to worship God in ways they were not allowed to do before. You see this come up in the very next healing in, in Mark chapter 1 where... Um, Jesus is teaching in a, in a house, and there's so many people there wanting to get healed that, they, that it's, you can't get into the house. And so these four men, uh, uh, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof just above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. So this guy, this paralyzed man, is lowered down in front of Jesus... And what is this man, what is, what is everybody expecting him to say? Take up your mat and walk, right? Because Jesus is a healer. What does he say? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And why did he say that? Because that was the bigger issue. See, if you remember, if you were here for the sermon on John the Baptist, you'll remember that we said that when the prophets talked about forgiveness of sins in the future, they always meant the same thing. They were always talking about God forgiving the sins of Israel that were in the way of Israel being restored. Because Israel had so publicly failed God, God could not bring them back into his plan without publicly forgiving them. Their sin needed to be forgiven, otherwise God's just enabling it, right? And so when Jesus says, I'm restoring Israel, and then he goes around forgiving people's sins, he is saying, this person is restored to God's people. And that's the more important thing in this instance. That's also part of why it was so controversial to the Jewish leaders when Jesus claims that he's able to forgive Israel's sins on behalf of God. This immediately upsets the Pharisees who are watching. And they, they think, well, who does this man think he is that he would do this? 
It says uh, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? Jesus said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Why did Jesus heal this man, heal this man's paralysis? I'm sure it, it also involved his intense compassion. But in terms of a ministry, in terms of his mission, he did it to prove that the forgiveness of sins was real. That when Jesus says you're forgiven, you actually are forgiven. Because ultimately, Jesus healed the sick and forgave sins to restore people to the community of God. That's what he's doing. He's saying these people who are marginalized, these people who are outcasts, these people who are not able to be part of God's community are now back in. I'm putting Israel back together. Now, Jesus had another way of doing this because there are, obviously, there are people who are not, don't need healing, but need forgiveness, right? So Jesus has a different approach in those situations. Once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. So again, Jesus is putting together people who will follow with him in his mission. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, tax collectors and sinners is a common phrase. It's an idiom that would go together. Just all the people that are breaking the law of Moses. All the people that are undesirable. Because tax collectors, it wasn't just that they were taking your money. They were taking it for the Romans who were dominating God's land. Right? They were, they were collaborating with the enemies of God's people. So this is a bad group that Jesus is hanging out with. And, here's the, and, and so, when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, here's the thing. The Pharisees didn't go around policing everybody's dinner parties. But Jesus isn't just anybody. Jesus is claiming to be restoring Israel. So it matters who he sits down and has a feast with, especially since the Old Testament talked about the moment when God restored everything as a feast. So when this guy who's claiming to restore Israel sits down and has a feast, it matters who he's inviting to the table. And so that's why the Pharisees were so upset by this, because Jesus is basically saying, these people that you despise, that you won't even let into your synagogues, I'm letting them into the kingdom. I'm inviting them as well. And so Jesus offers this invitation to all Jews to join him at the Feast of Restoration. All of them are willing to join him. Now, Keep in mind, that is, it's not just sinners and tax collectors. He also eats with a lot of Pharisees, because sometimes we think he only ate with sinners and tax collectors, and he kept with Pharisees at an arm's length. But Jesus often ate with Pharisees as well. It was the Pharisees who kept Jesus at an arm's length. And why? Because they didn't like the company. Because when Jesus throws a feast, and you want to eat with Jesus, you also have to eat with everybody else that he invited right? You don't get one-on-one time with Jesus. 
It was very rare for anybody to get one-on-one time with Jesus. You usually had to put up with all the other people that Jesus had invited. And so for the Jewish leaders, it was actually the company that they didn't like. More so, and they didn't like Jesus because of the company. So it's interesting how that open invitation can actually be what causes some people to exclude themselves. But the question then becomes, what does Jesus do with these people that have decided to follow him? Because again, very often what we will do is we'll say, oh, well, he, he went out to these people who were outside of the religious institutions, and he rejected the Pharisees who were inside the religious institutions, so maybe Jesus, he just came to forgive individual people and, and didn't care about the religious institutions, right? And that's why the next passage is really, really powerful, more powerful than it may seem at first. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, here's here's what that question reveals to us. First of all, what you need to know about John's disciples and about the disciples of the Pharisees is that these were large movements. John the Baptist was huge. And what would happen is people would come to hear John the Baptist preaching because he was in one, he stayed by the Jordan. They would come and hear his preaching, and then they'd go back to their towns and they would form John the Baptist clubs of people who had been changed by his preaching and wanted to live out what he had been teaching them. And so there were groups of John's disciples in various towns. And those disciples would have certain shared practices like feasting or fa- uh, fasting, right? So John's disciples were known to be fasting at this time. The Pharisees did the same thing. They put together Pharisee clubs in each town. And according to the Pharisee calendar and the John the Baptist calendar, now was a time to fast. Now this question that is being asked tells us when they compare Jesus' followers to John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees, that Jesus had the same kind of followers. Right? That there, as Jesus went through a town... He did call some people to follow him on the road, but he also founded Jesus clubs of people who had been transformed by Jesus and had decided that they wanted to live out his message. And so he left behind himself these communities of Jesus followers. And apparently, these followers did not fast at the same times as the others. Now, is that because that Jesus taught them, well, religious expressions don't matter, so just don't do any of it? No. Because Jesus has a reason why they're not fasting. Notice what he says. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Why aren't they fasting? Well, because they're feasting instead. And why are they feasting? Because they are convinced that they are living in the time that Israel's being restored. The whole reason you fasted was to mourn the fact that you were in exile. And if Jesus' followers were to continue to fast, that would mean that they had no hope of being out of exile. But Jesus says, no, I want you to feast because Israel's being restored. So what that tells us is that these were people who, they were distinct groups of people who had their own way of worshiping, that communicated something meaningful about what they believed. We see another instance of this in Luke. At one point, one of Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. John, the John clubs had their own special prayers that John had taught them. And Jesus said, oh no, we don't have a special prayer. 
No, actually, Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, and he gave them a prayer. A prayer that we said this morning. So what we find is that Jesus taught his followers to live and worship in specific and meaningful ways that communicated something about these, these Jesus clubs. Except, except, I'm misleading you by calling them clubs. So you could call the John the Baptist groups clubs, in a way. You could call the Pharisee groups clubs, in a way. But one of the most controversial things that Jesus did was he elevated these communities far beyond clubs, far beyond everything. The mo- one of the most controversial things Jesus ever said was this. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now here's why that's, that's controversial. Why that would have had made an audible gasp from his audience. Because we actually have records. It's called, there's a, a document called the Mishnah that records the traditions of the Pharisees and, and their rabbi uh, descendants. Uh, and they have a specific rule on this. And the rule in the Mishnah is that if, you're, if you have a relative who hasn't been buried yet, who's dead, you are exempted from all... Yeah, that's important. If you have a relative who is dead and hasn't been buried yet, you are exempted from all requirements of the law until you bury them. You don't even have to pray. It specifically says you don't have to say the Shema. You don't have to say the, the, their other daily prayer. They're supposed to say three times a day. You don't have to wear the, the um, tassels and the, the prayer shawl. You don't do any of that until you get them buried. Because burying a relative was the biggest obligation you could possibly have. And Jesus says, no, if you're following me, your commitment to my movement is greater even than that. This would have absolutely shocked people. And it makes it funny to me that today we think of Christianity as the family values religion. Because Jesus did not teach family values. Jesus said, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And actually, one of the crimes that, Jews got, or that Christians got executed for by the Roman Empire was the undermining of family values. Because they said that to follow Jesus means to make his movement, your commitment to hit following him, higher than anything else. And so if it conflicts even with your family commitments, following Jesus comes first. Now that's a hard teaching. And I won't pretend to have simple answers on how that's properly lived out. Because as a pastor, it's, it's, there's a huge temptation for me to use that as permission to just throw myself into work and neglect my family. And I don't believe that that's what God calls me to do. It's, it's a hard calling. But there's also this a beautiful other side to that message that Jesus is preaching. Because here's what happens. When a group of people commit to Jesus so radically... That, it is their, that following him is their primary commitment, and they're all following the same person. You know what that makes them? That makes them a family. Here's how Jesus says it. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. 
homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What does that mean? That means that how do, how do we receive hundreds of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children? That's the church. That, that when people make this radical commitment to follow Jesus, they become radically committed to each other. Right? That's what the Pharisees hated, was if they were going to follow Jesus, they had to walk with all these people they didn't want to be with. And so Jesus called his followers to commit to a new family. But not just any family. Because remember what Jesus claims to be doing. He claims to be restoring Israel. So Jesus does something really, really significant with his followers. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus organizes his followers, and he chooses 12 of them into this primary leadership role. Why 12? Where else do we see the number 12 in the story of Israel? There were 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the signs of Israel's decay was the fact that they had lost nine and a half of them. There are two and a half tribes left at this point. There's, the, there's Judah, Benjamin, and whatever Levites were living with them when the northern kingdom fell. Like that's why we call them Jews, because they're mainly from Judah. And so when Jesus takes together this family and organizes them and puts 12 people in charge of them, He's saying, this isn't just a family. This isn't just a group. This is the renewed and restored Israel with the full number, right? So Jesus organized his family as the new Israel, the covenant-bearing people of God. What what that means, the covenant-bearing people, means they were the ones that were going to fulfill God's plan for Israel because this is Jesus' mission, to renew Israel. And so the way he does that is by forgiving people, by restoring them, and by bringing them into this family that then takes on the mission of God. This is what Jesus was doing. And it's what he's still doing today. And so as we close, what I want you to take away is these three things. Here's the three takeaways for learning what Jesus' ministry means for us today. The first thing it means is that Jesus offered healing, forgiveness, offers healing, forgiveness, and restoration to all people. Whether you are, um, regardless of what you have in your past, regardless of what baggage may holding you back, regardless of whatever you think makes you unworthy, Jesus offers healing, forgiveness, and restoration. The table is open. The invitation is open. And so if you're here today and you need this forgiveness, this healing from sin, this restoration, it is available to you through Jesus today. But I'll warn you, because this is where we lose some people, that you can't just take that restoration and run on your merry way. If you could, the Pharisees would have been more likely to follow Jesus. Because here's the thing. Jesus does not save individuals. He restores individuals to the people of God. The Bible is not the story of Jesus and me. It's the story of Christ and his church. Now, we do get all kinds of mixed up when we confuse the church with the authority structures and institutions that we like to use in the church. 
When I say the church, I mean the family of God, the community. You don't go off on your own and just do whatever you want, and that's how you follow Jesus. Following Jesus should always lead you into being in community with his followers and being part of his family. And so for all of us, one of the problems that we've run into is we've started to pick and choose who we want to be in God's family. And that's a lot of the reason why we have so many different types of churches and, and so many different uh, divisions and, and, and resentments. It's because we forget that we are all made a family. If we have the same father, then we're brothers and sisters. And this is the really exciting thing about following Jesus for me, is that Jesus makes us into a committed family with all the challenges, blessings, and joys that come with family. Because being a family is one of the best things in your life and one of the hardest things in your life. Unfortunately, sometimes it's one or the other, but what family is meant to be is this radical commitment, right, where there are so many blessings and joys that come from that as we support each other through the challenges of life, as we support each other um, and, and build each other up and are dedicated to each other, right? We're just, we are there for each other as much as possible. There are also challenges because we have to continue, if we're going to be there for each other, we have to put up with each other. And if, if our support for other people is going to mean something, we have to be there for each other at our worst times. We have to put up with each other when they're at their most annoying, right? That's what, to me, that's what being a sibling was. Like, I could, I could take a day off from my friends whenever I wanted, but I had to be with my brothers on their most annoying days, right? And that is a, that is a challenge. That is hard. But the benefits are so amazing and beautiful that if a church can accomplish this, if a church can truly be united in Christ as a family, there are amazing, beautiful things that come out of that. And I'll tell you, this is who we at Turner Christian Church are striving to be. We want to be a family. And it's so exciting as we're in this time when things are opening up a bit more to be able to see that and because we've had so many obstacles to being a family. But that's who we seek to be. So as we close, I'm going to, you know, Jesus, we spent all this time talking about what Jesus calls people, called people to do back then. Jesus is calling you now as well. And he could be calling you to do a lot of different things, to make a lot of different commitments. But here's some that, that we can help you walk through. Number one is if you want to give your life to Jesus, today is the best day to give your life to Jesus. That freedom, that restoration, that healing, that forgiveness is available today. And you can take advantage of it. If you're here, you can come forward during the final song. You can talk to one of our ministers after the service. If you're online, you can get in touch with the church or you can talk to a Christian that you know and trust. But if that's what God's putting on your heart, do it today. Another thing you can do is get involved in a small group or a service team. If you want to do that, you can check that box on your Connect card. And these are ways that we come together and we support each other. You know, as we are in Connect classes, we, we learn each other's stories, we pray for each other from week to week, we get dig into the Bible together. As we join service teams, we work together, we work for others, we serve others. And finally, if you want to be committed to this church family, that's what church membership is about. When you become a member of a church, this is kind of a weird thing today because membership isn't popular in this day and age. I'll, what I'll tell you is this, it doesn't get you to the front of the line in potlucks or in heaven, okay, being a member of a church. It's not like that. But what I see as the value of, of membership in a church is it's you acknowledging and accepting that commitment to a family. 
say, I'm going to be a part of this family. I'm going to love these people, and that's going to mean something. It's not, I'm not just a part of a church because I happen to be there that Sunday, but I'm committed to this family. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to treat you like family if you don't become a member, or anything like that, right? There's no barriers. There's no, it's just an opportunity that you have to make that commitment. So if you'd like to make that commitment or consider that commitment, you can sign up for a Connect class. As people sign up for that, we put those together on Sunday afternoons where we have some food, we talk about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. Now, God may be placing a lot of other things on your heart, and I encourage you to spend this final song singing, but also considering what God is calling you to do. And um, if you want to talk with us about any of these decisions, feel free to do that after the service. So please stand with us and sing.